You got that? Anna once invited me. Anna and I have known each other for a long time. Anna once invited me. She was leading the youth uh, ministry at New Wine. And Anna invited me to go along and be a pastoral kind of presence for your team. Is that fair? Yes? Anyway, whilst I was there, I met this um, lovely person called Tabby. Yeah. So I feel like I need to publicly apologise for the lack of pastoral care that went on during that week. (laughs) He was not available. (laughs) I was distracted. (laughs) Oh, we forgive you. I forgive you. Can I pray for you? Please do. Father, bless Anna with your spirit. Fill her afresh now. And uh, Lord, we pray, open our hearts to receive... Uh, more of the goodness that uh, she has for us through you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, so let's do a little recap of Philippians of what we know so far. So we've got Paul, um, our friend who was a a murderer, we call him a murderer, um, who's basically gone through this total turnaround and he's now totally and utterly devoted to Jesus, sitting in a Roman prison. And his friends from Philippi have come and offered him help and support. And he's writing back his thank you letter. And he's inviting them who are also facing struggle, who are also facing hardship, to rejoice. And again, he says, rejoice. And he's basically inviting them to live a countercultural, revolutionary way of living. And Paul is exhibiting a type of freedom in his life, which is in direct contrast to the chains that he is held in. Paul has experienced his own revolution and from that cold-hearted murderer to a loving pastor. And he's writing to Lydia and Co., the the jailer and the woman who was um, oppressed by a demon, basically reminding them of the revolution that he started in them all that time ago. And what we've missed so far, um, and hopefully if you have been reading it, you can kind of pick up some of the the, the wider sweep of the, the letter. But what we've missed is where the the context for the hymn comes from. So I'm just um, basically just before he... Paul basically says, I'm inviting you to live in this way of life. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourself, not looking for your own interests, but the interests of others. Then comes the hymn. It's basically like a sandwich of two, like the meat in the middle is the the hymn, and then two lovely pieces of bread, if you're really hungry right now. Sourdough, crusty bread on the side. Basically, the, the first one saying like, live this way of life then this is how Jesus lived and then he goes and gives on the other side the other bit of um, bread it's not an open sandwich is um, examples of Christ-like people and he points to two people um, uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus and then himself so and this is significant because basically what Paul is saying is this, this way of living that Jesus lived, the way, the demonstration of what it means to be like God, he's not saying, oh, why don't you just respect it? Why didn't you just say, oh, that's a really nice way to live? He's actually saying, imitate it. Come on now, you live that way. Conduct yourself in exactly the same way that Jesus has done. He's, um, Jesus is providing an example to, free, to true living, and this is how you live, by living uh, in a downward trajectory. So he then points out Timothy, Epaphroditus, and then he uses his own life as an example. So we're going to be looking at some of that, basically redefining the course of honor. Because what, um, what Paul does and um, what, what, what Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus do is they basically take on exactly the same route, the course of honor that Jesus took on. Basically saying we are going to take the position of slaves and servant. It's a story of loss. And you kind of want to ask the question of like, why the heck would you choose it? Like what benefit is it for you to choose this way of life? Paul's situation and his argument just don't make sense unless... Jesus is who he says he is. And what they gain in Jesus is far more than they could ever gain in the world. That's what his entire argument is based on. Does your life make sense without Jesus? If you were going to take Jesus out of your life, would it look pretty much exactly the same? Or does your life make complete and utter incoherence unless Jesus is the son of God, unless he died for you, unless he rose again and is alive now? If you took Jesus out of the equation of life, would your life hold together in any form of coherence? 
that's what these passages are about. And Emily is going to come and read to us. Um, there she is. Um, it's quite a long one, so let's let's let for for Emily's benefit, just stay with her. Um, so we're going to be looking at um, from Philippians two nineteen to three fourteen. Thank you, Emily. Okay, um, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back you to Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is always your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs of all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you have... When you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Then we go on to chapter three. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Let's give her a huge round of applause. Very good. Well done, your English teachers. Okay, <clears throat> let's start with Timothy. Um, now, um, Timothy, what we know about Timothy is he basically was a companion of Paul. He was someone that kind of was a bit of like a mentee to Paul. And in some ways, this, like, this little opening bit feels a bit of like mundane chat about friends, doesn't it? But there are some very significant features in it. But for it, we need to revisit our old friends' shame and honor. Because what Paul is doing in, honor Tim in honoring Timothy is he's redefining what it is, what's worthy of honor. He's redefining the course of honor. What Paul isn't doing is saying, honor is a terrible thing, let's just bin it. What he's doing is he's redefining it. And it's absolutely right to honor people. In Psalm 8, one of my favorite Psalms, it says that human beings are crowned with glory and honor, made a little lower than the angels. What it actually should say is a little lower than God. Human beings are crowned with glory and honor, made a little lower than God. But look closely at what he honors Timothy for. Um, Timothy's life, if you read the bits in the white, Timothy's life imitates Christ. He pours himself out for others. Like Jesus, he does not look for his own interests. And like Jesus, he chooses the position of a servant. 
This is a mentoring relationship, unlike any mentoring relationship we will see nowadays. Because in a mentoring relationship nowadays, it's all about the mentor pouring into the mentee. You pour into them, and then the mentee just kind of sits there and receives all the goodness. What's happening here is actually it's the mentee who's pouring themselves out for the mentor. And that is a massive challenge to our narcissistic approach of doing relationships. Where basically when we come to people, it's like, it's all about what I can get from you. It's all about what I can receive from you. And I, I'm surely I'm not the only person in the room that ha has that tendency to approach relationships like that. What I can get rather than what I can give. Guilty of treating people and friendships, marriage, church, parents, mentors like that. And Paul is describing something completely different. He's saying in your relationships... The glue that holds you together is sacrifice. The attitude you should have to one another is to pour yourselves out for them. If you were to do an audit of your relationships, could you be described as a servant to your friends, your family, and your co-workers? I just want to take um, marriage for an example. Marriage has been sold to us as this amazing romantic notion where you actually get all your personal fulfillment and filling that hole inside of you that you then become the other half of you, you meet the other half of you, and you become in a whole being. That is rubbish. That is complete and utter rubbish. That is not the biblical view of what marriage is. The biblical person of marriage is not about your own fulfillment, your own comfort. Jesus is the one who fulfills you. Jesus is the one who comforts you. Jesus is the one who makes you whole. And what happens in marriage is when two people are joined together, where Jesus has poured in and made them whole, they are meant to be an image of what it looks like when Jesus loves the church. And what does Jesus do for the church? He pours himself out. It's a, it's a relationship of sacrifice. It's a relationship of faithfulness. It's a relationship of forgiveness. It's nothing to do with personal fulfillment. And that's part of the problem when we have all these conversations about sexuality is what underneath all of it is all about me. It's all about my fulfillment, my satisfaction. That is rubbish. That is not the biblical view of sexuality. And just like Jesus and the church, marriage is, um, is about creating something beyond family, beyond anything biological, a place of hospitality for those who are unlike you. The kingdom concept of marriage is not the idol that we have been sold. And therefore, to the single people, I want to say to you, marriage will not fulfill you. I totally get it if that's the thing that you're longing for, but it will not fulfill you. Only Jesus will fulfill you. Only Jesus will give you the contentment that you're longing for. That's the only relationship that is going to make you whole. And to the married people in the room, I want to say your marriage is not about you. What about how we approach the church? Like, do you come to church to receive? Do you come to receive from John and Joe that they would just pour themselves out? And, you know, if that's, if that's the approach, if you're coming to church, you're going to break them. Because no one can do that. They cannot do what Jesus can do for you. Church is not a consumeristic activity where you come and receive the one you receive from is with you all the time. You walk with him day in, day out. What happens is when you come to church, you come to pour yourselves out. And what happens when everyone is pouring themselves out is actually you find that you get very fulfilled because you're in a community of people where everyone is pouring themselves out. But when we come with an attitude of, I come and receive me, we're in a, we're in a, end up in a community of scarcity because there's nothing. Everyone's terrified of what, we haven't, I haven't got enough friends, I haven't got this. Rather than thinking about who can you give friendship to? Who can you draw into the center? Who can you offer hospitality to? What we need to do is where we, we need to spend our lives where we finished our last session, letting Jesus pour into us. Letting Jesus tell us who we are. Letting Jesus fill us with contentment. Let Jesus fill us with fulfillment. And when we start doing that, it changes the way we do relationships. Because if you, you do it the other way, you will end up disappointed. You will end up unfulfilled. You will end up needy because people can't do what Jesus can do. And Paul points to Timmy and says, that's how you should do community. That is how you should do relationships. 
But then to make his argument even stronger, he then turns to Epaphroditus, which is a character that they would have known well. Remember, Epaphroditus was the guy that carried the letter over to, to Paul in Rome, and he's bringing the letter, not the letter, the food, and he's bringing the letter back to them. Now, um, again, for this bit, for us to understand these, these verses, we need to go back to our shame and honor culture. Because how did you get honor in ancient Greece? Well, basically, there were two different ways. The first one was inherited honor. It was something that you received by your family. Um, it was uh, basically passed down for you, whether you were uh, a natural child or an adopted child. You would receive honor by having your family name. You would also um, get ascribed honor, honor that was given to you. And there are a few different ways of doing that. The first one was being a soldier. If you were victorious in battle, you would um, receive honor. If you were an athlete, you would receive a crown. If you, that was a way of receiving honor. There was, um, we've talked about like the, the public status, kind of the, the, the course of honor through um, public glory. Uh, if you uh, were a benefactor, if you basically built a town in a village, that was a way of you receiving honor, gaining honor. If you had virtues that were exemplified by Rome, you were able to receive honor. So they would basically do whatever they could do to collect honor to their own name and build themselves up. And if you were fortunate to get honor, you would basically end up with, with things like titles and statues and plaques. Because these were like the kind of the visible things of like, I am someone who carries honor. And you would be someone that people would marvel at. They would see your crown, they would see your statue, they would see your plaque, and they think, wow, you're amazing. And one of the things they would do is they would get titles. So when we look at how um, Paul describes Epaphroditus, look at the words he uses. My brother, he's giving him family honor. He's saying this is one who is Christ-like. He's part of the family. He's a Christ-like one. He bears the family resemblance of Christ. He calls him his co-worker, a professional honor. He calls him a soldier, not for Rome, but for the gospel. He calls him a messenger, a sent one. He calls him a servant, which exemplifies not the virtues of Rome, but the virtues of the kingdom. So you've got five titles there. Like one title would be big. So Paul is laying it on thick. He's saying this is a man worthy of honor. And some of the reasons people think that Paul was doing this is because Epaphroditus had got sick. And that might have been seen as a, a shameful thing. And therefore, he might have lost um, sight in the kind of the Philippians' eyes. So Paul is holding him up and saying, no, no, actually, he's a man that's worthy of honor. And why is Paul insisting that this is a man who's worthy of honor? Well, it's because he's someone who's gambled his life on the gospel. The word risk um, in, this book, in this chapter is actually a, a gambling word. And gambling was very popular in ancient Greece, but it was actually seen as a, like a religious activity because if you gambled and you were successful, it meant the gods were pleased with you. So when it's talking about um, Epaphroditus, it says that he risked his life um, for the gospel. He basically gambled his life. He gave his life to Jesus. And Paul is saying that man is worthy of honor. Someone who throws it all in and risks their life for Jesus, that is someone who's worthy of honor. Paul is saying, like, don't be distracted. Don't be distracted by the pomp and the ceremony of Philippi. Be distracted by that sort of behavior. Be distracted by someone who is all in for the kingdom, who is all in for Jesus. And it kind of makes us ask the question, well, what does our culture celebrate? What does Exeter celebrate? I think one of the things Exeter celebrates is safety. Don't rock the boat. It celebrates comfort. Actually, being financially secure, that is the pinnacle. It celebrates success. It celebrates power. It actually celebrates apathy. It celebrates feelings first. It celebrates us, putting us at the center of the story. And what Paul would say to us is that stuff is not worth celebrating. What Paul would say to us is that stuff actually can be a hook in your heart which would crush you. That's not worth celebrating. 
So you get this sense with Epaphroditus and Timothy that, Timothy that their lives aren't their own. Their lives are lived like Jesus lived his life for others. Jesus was a man for others. Epaphroditus and Timothy are men who live their lives for others. They're opening themselves up. They are trusting themselves to God. They're trusting their lives to God. And they are willing to be poured out for him. And Paul is, Paul is honoring them. And what he's trying to do, he's trying to stir up desire in the Philippians. He's trying to stir up that desire for honor because they loved to be honored. They loved to be celebrated. So he's actually using that and he's saying, yeah, I'll honor people. Honor is good, but I'm only going to honor the right things. I'm only going to honor the sacrifice. I'm only going to honor people who are pouring themselves out for Jesus, not who put themselves at the center of the story and are about oppression and power. And Paul is basically saying, these are the honored ones. These are the ones who are honored in the kingdom. Now, I want to pause for a moment because um, some of this chat has been kind of ancient chat. But actually, I want us to have, a, we've got a story of people who have, I'm just looking for Jenny. Is she in the room? There she is. We've got a story. Jenny's going to come and share a story, if you want to come up, Jenny, um, of, of people who are living this way of life right now in, in, this, in our time um, so sit comfortably. It's a very good story. And Jenny, I've been told, is the best reader in ENC. <laughs> no pressure. Um, but yeah, go. Thanks. <laughs> Rebecca glanced over to her left. Her eyes were drawn to a coffin in the back of one of the many Toyota pickup trucks that surrounded them. She knew that these men would do anything to throw their lifeless bodies into that wooden box and hurl it on a dump outside the city. The onslaught of hatred was overwhelming. Fear began to clutch at her throat. But Rebecca remembered her prayer that morning. Lord, are you here with us? Now she clung on to his response. Yes. I am. He was here. Even in this dark, violent, terrifying street where death prowled menacingly before them, she felt his peace fill and fortify her quivering heart. She looked at her two friends beside her and they returned her gaze. They all knew and felt his presence with them. He was the only reason they kept calm in the face of burning hostility. And as they were bundled into the back of a police van, each woman knew that he would be the only reason for them surviving where they were heading next. The door to the cell screeched open and the women were thrust into man-made hell. The vile stench of human excrement, urine and sweat hit them first, catching in their throat and causing them to retch. The heat was blistering, making it nearly impossible to breathe. They groped their way through the thick darkness, glimpsing the faint outlines of human figures slouching beside feces splattered up the walls. Tension lurked in every corner of this forsaken place. There were jihadists, drug smugglers, murderers in here, left to seethe in terrible silence for endless hours. It was the filthiest pit reserved for Indonesia's most dangerous criminals, where the most wanted became the unwanted, disposed of in the darkness and the dirt. This was Rebecca, Etty, and Ratner's home now. The three managed to find a cleaner area of the concrete floor. As they sat in silence, slowly acclimatizing to their surroundings, they reflected on the events of the past three months which had led to them being convicted criminals and imprisoned in one of their country's most notorious penitentiaries. They remembered their journeys to and from church every Sunday, where they would meet the children that roamed the streets, children of local prostitutes and street vendors who had little hope of getting fed and no hope of going to school. 
They remembered their joy when the local authorities gave them permission to start Happy Tuesday Club, a place where the children could enjoy a home-cooked meal, receive a health education lesson, and hear stories about Jesus. They remembered how grateful the parents were for the club and how they were always happy for their children to hear the Bible stories that Rebecca, Etty, and Ratna shared. They remembered how God had provided for them and how many happy moments everyone had shared there. Then they remembered the day when everything changed. Their arrest, their confusion, their fear, their pain of being forced away from their families, their dismay at hearing the reason behind it. Fundamentalist Islamists were outraged that they were indoctrinating the community's children with Christian beliefs. Their bewilderment when entering court for the first time. Their shock when leaving court with a five-year prison sentence and fine. It had happened so quickly. It almost felt like it hadn't really happened at all. But it had. This was their reality for the next five years. There was no point in trying to deny it or escape it, but simply to walk through it day by day. Despite languishing in the horrendous darkness of this cell, something inside them told them that they weren't here by chance, that Jesus had placed them here for a reason. They simply had to trust that he would help them through it and somehow make it work for their good and his glory. Staring into the darkness, the three women wondered what that reason could be. The next day, the answer came. In the hush of the early morning, Rebecca heard that familiar voice, that gentle, loving whisper of truth himself. It was him. He was here. And he was speaking to her. Rebecca's eyes widened and heart leapt in excitement. He spoke. She listened. In this place where any sense of meaning, identity and purpose slowly wasted away into oblivion, his words reinforced these deep in her soul's core. She knew who she was. She understood why they were there. And she resolved to realize this purpose, whatever it would cost her and her friends. She whispered to Etty and Ratna what God had told her. And then the three women got to work. Rebecca stepped her way over to the door of the cell and waited for a guard to come. The hours passed, but finally a guard noticed her standing at the window. After putting on his body armor, in case this woman would try and brutalize him like her fellow inmates always did, he slowly unlocked the door and bluntly asked what Rebecca wanted. Sir, would you give me and my friends three buckets of water and disinfectant? He said nothing, but his frown gave away his suspicion. At last he agreed, snorting in contempt as he marched away to fetch buckets for this delusional woman. At least she couldn't hurt him or her inmates with soapy water. Soon he returned, carrying three large red buckets brimming with disinfectant mixed water. Rebecca thanked him, hauling the buckets over to her friends, and immediately they began scrubbing the walls, washing off years' worth of encrusted excrement and urine stains. The stench soon began to be replaced by a welcome and novel freshness. The other inmates watched them in stunned silence. It was insanity to show any care for this hellish cell designed solely to punish its contemptible inhabitants. It was like offering to clean the gun of your executioner. Yet here they were, willingly cleaning the place meant to break them. As their cloths, hands and clothes browned from the filth, Rebecca, Etty and Ratna reflected on how Jesus had willingly washed his disciples' dirty feet. Even the one who would betray him only hours later. If he could do that, 
they could do this. If he acted in love and humility towards his enemies, so would they. They knew that their Lord had shown this love until his final gasping breath. They knew they had to show his love in every way they could until the day of their release. So when they noticed that their inmates were badly malnourished, unable to cook or feed themselves properly, they cooked for them. When they saw that the prison rations meant that many didn't have enough to eat, they gave them their own rations. Whenever they noticed someone in need, they provided for them as best they could. The entire environment in their prison began to shift. Their names were whispered throughout the cells and the guards' offices. No one had seen anything like it. Love had never shone in this dark, hostile place. It wasn't supposed to. But now everyone could sense its gentle, defiant glow. And it was only going to get brighter. I've read your papers. You're trained as a doctor, aren't you? Rebecca nodded. The guard explained to her that he was suffering from severe stomach cramps. They would last for hours, bending him over in crippling agony. He couldn't afford a doctor's appointment. Then he saw Rebecca's papers, which stated that she had been a qualified doctor before having her accreditation stripped after being convicted. He decided to ask her for help, even if it meant incurring taunts from his colleagues. She considered his symptoms and scribbled down on a scrap of paper the medication he needed. He thanked her, shut the cell door and slipped away down the corridor. It clearly worked. After four weeks, 40 prison guards were regularly coming to Rebecca to receive advice for their various health issues. Rebecca gladly saw them all. She was grateful for the opportunity to practice her expertise, something she had greatly missed. She also knew that every effort to bless others gained a little more of their trust for her and her friends. Their trust meant that they would get even more opportunities to show Jesus' love to those around them. So they simply loved. They loved those who were entirely unlovely. They loved those who wouldn't return their love. They simply loved those who God placed in front of them. This lasted for three months. Then came the call. The prison governor wanted to see them. He eyed the three women standing on the other side of his desk. They appeared to be ordinary enough, but he knew that they were anything but ordinary, not after all they had done. He studied their demeanors closely and was met by a quiet confidence, a peaceful resilience emanating from all three. Most criminals he had seen in this place brooded with unrelenting rage until the conditions eventually destroyed their spirits. But not these three. He pondered why they were different and what sort of belief had compelled them to behave so kindly ever since they had entered these four walls. Finally, he spoke. I was informed you were subversaries, so I was going to break your hearts and minds the moment you came in here. He paused. Without flinching, the three women held, held his gaze. He continued. But you've been a blessing to the entire prison. And I want to ask you something. How would it be if your church came here on a Sunday? They will be safe and we'll take care of you. Your church members will be welcome and you can also say whatever you like to them only because you have been a blessing to all of us. Rebecca, Etty and Ratner's quiet demeanor finally broke. Tears filled their eyes as they turned to one another in disbelief. They had not seen their families for over three months. They had missed three months of seeing their children grow up. 
enjoying the closeness of their church community and looking after the children at their Happy Tuesday Club. They had endured three months of painful separation, hard work and constant sacrifice. Now they could reunite with their families and church community each week. Beaming, they turned back to the prison governor and thanked him profusely. He waved them away, saying that they could host their first service this Sunday. After being dismissed, the three women left his office, smiles still crossing their faces as they shut the door behind them. He sat back in his chair and gazed up at the fan whirring above him, still contemplating the remarkable nature of the three ladies who had turned his prison upside down. A car horn blared, most likely at a daring scooter rider swerving too closely to the driver's vehicle. The chatter of hundreds of conversations punctuated the air as Indra Mayu thrummed with bustling activity on this bright Sunday afternoon. The sounds reached Rebecca on the other side of the prison wall as she strolled through the garden that she... Etty and Ratner had planted around a year ago. As she walked, she ran the leaves of the surrounding plants through her hands, gently caressing their soft leaves with her fingertips. Some of the bulbs were already beginning to poke through from their dark confines of the soil into the big, brilliant world above. Rebecca wondered when she and her friends would emerge into the freedom of the outside world again. She thought back to the day when they'd arrived here. The stench, the heat, the darkness, the chilling mix of tension and despair that hinged the atmosphere. That day was two and a half years ago. So much had changed since then. The cells were clean, the prisoners were well fed, the fish farm had been established, and her church had been coming to meet in the prison for two years. They had just had their Sunday morning service, and Rebecca hummed one of the melodies of the hymns they had joyfully sung together. She reflected on the words Jesus had spoken to her in those first hours in the cell all those years ago. She, Etienne Ratner, had been faithful to what he had said and how much more faithful he had been in return. He had always been with them. But more than that, he had used them to transform this place and the lives of those within it. She paused beside a flowering orchid and smiled. Over the space of two years, she and her friends had experienced the joy of leading 47 inmates and guards to faith in Jesus. The oppressive darkness of this place had not extinguished the light of Christ. Its thick concrete walls, steel doors and coiled barbed wire had not stopped his freedom entering the hearts of those held within them. It had been an honour to play a part in his plan. Sighing, she turned back towards the door. It had been an honour, but she still desperately missed her family and the life that lay beyond those walls. So much had changed, yes, but at the same time, she was still there. Rebecca! She looked up. There were Etty and Ratner running towards her. What had happened? Rebecca, we're free. We're free. The three collided in a tangled embrace, weeping, laughing, praising God in a garble of words and wails. They had only reached the halfway mark of their original sentence. Now, as Etty and Ratner excitedly explained, the end had been brought forward. They were finally going home. But as the three women gathered themselves together, they agreed that they wouldn't leave this place forever. There were 47 new Christians whom they loved and wanted to disciple. Even now, there was still work to be done. There were still people who needed to know the love of Jesus, and they would come back to show it to them. Those women are the ones that are worthy of honour. Just taking just very normal people, taking buckets and wiping up the grime in a place which hadn't known love. Serving in a place that hadn't been served. 
They chose the path of servanthood, and Jesus exalted them. Jesus did more than they could possibly dream or imagine. The same is true now as it was back in those, that prison cell in Rome. So we've seen this example. So Paul points the example of Timothy of Epaphroditus. We've seen the example of that, those women. But then in our passage, Paul then turns to himself. And what he does is slightly different. He doesn't say, oh, look how fantastic I am. What he does is he points out what not to run after. So if we went back to our shame and honor culture, um, to get our heads around that this, this basically would have been the people's lived experience of Philippi. People listening to Paul talking, they would have said, we know the crushing feeling of what it is to have to chase after honor all the time. Most of the people listening to, to the, the letter being read would have been the people that have never experienced honor. Perhaps they were like the jailer and they found Christ when they were on the edge of suicide. Just as a little aside, basically one of the ways, if you had brought shame on your family, the way to get rid of that shame upon your family was to take your own life. How disgusting is that? That was the culture that they were living in. That was the reality of a shame and honor culture. The only way to get the honor back for your family is to take your own life. But then there would have also been those amongst them who were like Lydia, who had actually experienced some kind of honor. She was wealthy. She had prominence. And it wouldn't have been too dissimilar to this room. Basically, there'd be people in here who've just never experienced honor, who've never experienced the status that other people might have experienced. But the reality was that it didn't matter which camp they were in. Shame and honor, whether you had it or you did not have it, it was still would have hooked into their hearts. It would have still shaped the way they were living. Their shape, their desire for honor would shape what they did, the way they thought, the way they acted. And Paul is saying, I want you to be free of that. I want you to be liberated from running after those things. So what he does is he basically says, like, that version of honor, that cultural version of honor, it is rubbish. It means nothing. As I said um, in, sorry, I've got a sniffle. <laughs> um, in um, in uh, Greece, uh, in ancient Greece, they would have these, these statues, these plaques, etc. cetera. And um, on, on them, it would say basically, oh, my little hanky, oh, thank you. <laughs> I, could, I could not have to go to get home and wash it. Um, uh, anyway, sorry, distracted. Um, and a, a plaque sounds a little bit naff, doesn't it? Like, oh, it's the sort of thing you maybe get at primary school and your mum keeps um, to show, you know, how proud she is of you. Um, I don't know, most hardworking or, you know, for me, would have been most enthusiastic, I imagine. Not a high achiever. Um, but it would have basically been like, to have one of these plaques, it would have been like the height of honour in the culture. It would have been something that you actually, you dreamt about, you chased after, you acted so that you could actually go and get this thing, that you could be celebrated and honored. And what Paul does is he basically writes a list, which had been very similar to one of those plaques. He starts it by saying, like, if someone thinks they have reason to put more confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, a tribe of, the Benj of Benjamin, a Hebrew of he Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Like, he's basically saying, like, this, they would have recognized that type of writing. He's basically saying, these are my achievements. These are the things that I'm known for. Like, this is what I've got in my favor. I've got family honor. I've got um, professional status as a Pharisee. I am virtuous by following the law. This would have been basically his course of honor. Paul writes his own plaque, and the, list, the people listening to him are like, yes, 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 that is something that is worthy of honor. And what does Paul say of it? He says, I consider it garbage. For whatever regains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider it garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He considers it all garbage. The Greek words was scubala, which basically means thrown to the dogs, dung, poo, crap. It's like, this is crap. I hold up this plaque and I say, this means nothing. It belongs on the rubbish heap. I'm going to throw it away. 
All those plaques that people had gone after, all those titles, all those things that they had accumulated, he's saying it's rubbish, it means nothing. It's worthless. It belongs to being thrown to the dog. Paul has tasted all of that. He's known what it is to have honor, and he says it's meaningless. He'll be more content in a Roman prison cell with Jesus than a life of honor without him. Paul is investing himself in the honor of being found in the likeness of Jesus. It says sharing in his suffering, choosing the place of service, that he might know the power of the resurrection, the goal, the prize, the victory is not a crown or a statue. It's completely and totally Jesus. Jesus makes every title and honor in this world look like crap in comparison. Paul makes a very measured decision. He weighs the loss and the gain. Those people that he loves remembers who he was and what he's given up. And he says, do you know what? It's worth it all. It is worth it all. He stands on the other side of the decision without money, without security, without reputation, in a jail. He says Jesus is worth it. Paul's sole reason for existence was to be like Jesus, to know him, to make him known, to be one who's made in the image of him that he might share his sufferings, have the honor of sharing his sufferings that he might share in his glory. He's giving his life for the one who considered equality with God, not something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of the servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself to death, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Paul's sole existence, his sole reason for living is to live and like and to know that man. Now, all of us have needs. Um, we all have the need for safety, power, attention, approval, success. Some of them will be like bigger needs in, in us. They all drive us to, to behave in certain ways. For me, um, I've got the need for attention. This suit says everything. The need for power and success. And I have to keep, a, I have to keep an eye on those things because I know they can be a trap in my heart. And basically, uh, moving down to Cornwall over the last eight years... One of the, the biggest battles, which I haven't spoken about as much, didn't appear in the vision vis video, was that I was slightly disgusted that God would call me to a place of such little power and significance. Like I was there living in London. I was in a thriving church um, which had a good reputation. It had some great people around. I was quite liked there. Um, there were options to plant in London, and I could have basically um, planted down the road, and I could have taken some people with me uh, where they wouldn't have had to move house, they wouldn't have had to change their jobs, they could have come. The thing in London is you can grow a crowd quite quickly, so I would have had that success. I would have been able to keep my friends, I would have been able to have the London vicarage, and I would have been able to stay connected with important people. I would have all the attention, the success, and the power that my fragile, fragile ego needed. Funny enough, this isn't part of the story I share much. <laughs> no one moved down with me to a land that feels forgotten, to a place that actually feels like it's on the edges of power. I've been told by numerous bishops that churches in Cornwall don't grow. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with St. Gregory's, it could be a complete disaster, and I could go begging back for a job in London in a few years' time. But I tell you what, there is nothing more freeing than being liberated from those things. To actually embrace that death has been the most freeing thing that I've experienced. I've never felt more free than I have right now because I feel like that hook, that need has been taken out of my heart, it's his kindness to bring me here to die because I feel more free than I've ever felt before. And the question is, like, which way are you going to choose? Which way do you choose? Do you choose the route of honor as the, the Romans would see it? Do you choose comfort? Do you choose security? Do you not choose financial success? Do you choose status? Do you choose popularity? Do you choose getting your needs met? Do you choose it being about you or being about your fulfillment, you at the center of the story? Or do you choose the narrow path to death? The truth is, 
It's either Jesus or something else. It actually really is as binary as that. Like Jesus is either at the center of the story or he's not. And most of the time, we are the ones at the center of the story, which is why the descending life feels like death to us. All of us, for all of us, it'd be something different. One of those idols that's got in and captured our heart, that actually we're living for that thing, not for Jesus. And some of them will be good things, like C.S. Lewis um, has this, this great quote, which I love. Basically, it's like, idols always break the hearts of your worshippers, of the worshippers. And he kind of says it in the context of that there are some really good things in life. But actually, like marriage, kids, a good job, but like all of those things are really good. But you know what? They're, they're not the thing itself. And sometimes when we become obsessed with those things, when we make them the center of our lives, they just end up becoming idols that take us away from Jesus. And the reality is, if they are at the center of lives, they will break our hearts because they will never fulfill us in the way that Jesus fulfills us. They will never give us the freedom like Paul has in a prison to say, Basically, I'm free and I would choose to rejoice. Never give us the freedom that those women were experiencing. Never give them the purpose that those women experienced in that prison. Never the joy, because they just can't do that. They weren't made to. We were made to live with Jesus at the center. Right back at the beginning of time, our origin story is that we were made in the image and likeness of God. We were made to display his splendor to the world. We were made to look like him. We were made to walk like him. We were made to walk with him. That is what you were made for. The thing about repentance, which is what I feel like God is calling us into, is basically it's a coming back to yourself. It's coming back to who you really are meant to be. It sounds like a terrifying thing, but actually it's really just saying, I want to come home. I want to come home to the person that God has created me to be. I want to be the man, the woman that God has created me to be. And I want to put Jesus at the center because I know these things, they're going to make me sick. I know these things aren't going to fulfill me. I know these things are going to break my heart. But actually, Jesus, I want you at the center. And that's what I feel like he's leading us into now. So why don't we stand and we're just going to take some time Again, as um, not to be like a broken record, but basically to let Jesus gaze upon us and look into our hearts and just ask that question, does your life make sense without me? Am I on the edges of your life or am I at the very center? Yes, if the, the bank could come up, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, let's just um, bring ourselves before him again. Father, um, would you search us and know us? God, if there's any offensive way in us, we ask that you just, in your kindness, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Remember, the one it's calling you into repentance is the one who pours himself out. He doesn't suddenly turn into an angry, judgmental father. He's still the one with his arms wide open, saying, I love you so much, I'm going to die for you. That's who we come into repentance for.